In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have a very exciting episode, uh, significantly less depressing than our last two episodes, which I'm excited about. Still serious topics, still important mm-hmm. topics, but not death, doom, gloom, and destruction. So we're going to start out by talking about abortion, which Michael <laughs> and I don't count as Not death, death doom, gloom, <laughs> and destruction. Just light just, topics just here at the Perspectrum. Like abortion. Yeah, yeah. We're going to... Yeah. I mean, I feel like that should put into perspective how depressing our last two episodes have been. Mm-hmm. We're saying this is the least depressing one. We're going to talk yeah. about abortion. Yeah. Specifically, um, and then the fact that there isn't any more in Texas. That's, that's yeah. Really <laughs> and then we're going to talk about student loan debt. Again less depressing than the previous episodes, but one of the biggest causes of depression in America right now, I'm starting to, f- okay, I'm starting to regret saying that this is a less <laughs> And then we're going to have a discussion about whether or not people in Congress should be allowed to own stocks. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to, I think that's going to be an interesting discussion. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Speaking of stocking, and by stocking, I mean keeping track of something. Mm-hmm. What are keeping the COVID stock? numbers? Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's not over. <laughs> so worldwide, we've hit 320 million cases, which is up from 298 million last week. That's 22 million new cases in a week. 3.14 million new cases per day. Before the end of the end of December, just to put that in perspective, we uh, had never even hit a million cases per day before the end of December, and now we're three times that. Hmm. Um, in terms of death worldwide, we're at 5.54 million deaths, which is up from 5.48 million last week. So that's 60,000 new deaths in a week, almost 9,000 deaths per day, which is 60% higher than daily deaths um, the week before. So I will say that, like, it's encouraging in a way, I guess, that cases are at the highest level ever. Daily new cases are at the highest level ever, and deaths are not. Um, but that's, you really got to look for that silver lining, considering it's 9,000 deaths per day. Um, in terms of vaccination... Worldwide, 61% of the world's population has received at least one dose of the vaccine, which is up just 1% from 60.1 last week. In the U.S., we've hit 65 million cases, which is up from 58.4 million last week. So that's 6.6 million new cases in a week, or about 940,000 cases per day. Before last month, similarly to the world, the highest single day ever was 300,000 cases. So now we're, again, almost three times that. In terms of death in the U.S., we've hit 867,000 people, which is up from 853,000 last week. So that's 14,000 deaths in a week or 2,000 deaths per day. Again, very high, but about half of the peak 
in in daily deaths that we we saw um, last year. So, yeah. again, that relationship, like largely driven by vaccination. Yeah. Um, the jury's still out on Omicron, but like that the the rate of death per infection appears to be lower. Um, yeah. That's riding on the back of seventy four percent of people in the U.S. have at least one dose, which is flat from last week. 63% have at least two doses, which is um, up 1% from last week. And 23% have three doses, which is up just 1% from last week. And all in the face of the U.S. hitting its highest COVID hospitalizations ever this past week. Yeah. And that's that's an important point that I want to discuss real quick. We are at a major rate of hospitalizations right now. Now, I, I, I've talked to quite a few people that I'm friends with who have expressed the fact that because Fauci said that you are probably going to get the Omicron variant, like it's probably unavoidable that almost everybody's going to get it, mm. that they have this feeling that, well, I want to just go ahead and get it now. Mm. so that I can get it over with and be done. <laughs> and I understand the temptation there. Really, I do. All right? You know, get it done now, choose when to get it, whatever. Um, however, I would just like to point out the fact that one of the biggest strains on our healthcare system and one of the one of the reasons why people might die of the Omicron variant is because of a massive increase in hospitalizations and the more people get the virus at once, the less those hospitals are going to be able to accommodate that influx of people. Yep. So yeah, you're probably going to get it. Let it happen naturally. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, avoid it, do everything you can <laughs> to avoid it. Yeah. But like, don't try to make it happen beforehand. Yeah. You know, like do everything you can to delay it and delay it and delay it. And then when you do get it, do as much as you can in order to prevent it from spreading. Cause look, if you're listening to this, I mean, I know that most of our listeners are probably relatively young. Mm. Your odds are, if you're young, and also if you're vaccinated, yep. it's not going to be too bad for you. But you could spread it to somebody that is. Mm. I mean, I know that uh, my dad, he uh, he most likely got the got the the disease. He um, he was he got a rapid test that came back as negative, but the doctor that he talked to said that all of his symptoms sounded like COVID and Mm. that the rapid tests haven't been as great at catching Omicron. And he felt like shit for like a week. He didn't get hospitalized, but it it hit him pretty hard. And he is triple vaxxed, you know? So imagine how bad it would have been if he wasn't. But but the point is, you want to slow down that that transference because you want to make sure that... If you or somebody you pass it to end up needing to go to the hospital, that there is actually space for it. It's summer 2020 again, baby. (laughs) Flatten that curve. Yeah. 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 Also, a very quick side note. um, Don't take Jimmy Dore's advice either. (laughs) I think that's just like a general. That should be part of our intro. Welcome to the Spectrum. Don't take Jimmy Dore's advice. 
Yeah. Well, he he did a thing again. I, I know that this this wasn't a part of our plan. I know that we, <laughs> we didn't talk about this beforehand, Michael. Michael had no idea I was going to discuss this. But Jimmy Dore recently did another thing where he kind of manipulated what an article said. Like, he didn't straight up change the words like he did the first time. But he quoted an article. Like, he was talking about... Uh, children in schools and how children he, he was trying to make the point that children are not being hospitalized with omicron and so he quoted a doctor he, he put up a he put up a graphic there was a quotation from a doctor in an nbc article saying that they haven't seen an increase in hospitalizations among kids all right what's misleading about it is the article that he got it from the headline was five states see an increase in the rates of hospitalizations among kids the quotation he was he was referring to was specifically narrowly referring to Philadelphia. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. But if you actually found the fucking article, it specifically said it is on the rise in five states. <laughs> all you have to read is the headline. Like you don't even have to all you had to read, read was the headline. Which again, it makes it clear that he he is He's either searching a dumbass for things to confirm or, his narrative. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah, or a grifter. Um, just just a quick counter just 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 a quick caveat before we get into things i just want to make sure that people know not all lefties are created equally Mm -hmm. um even if you if you call if you want to call them a lefty uh not all leftist commentators know what they're talking about he doesn't all right yeah (laughs) so don't get your shit from him he's terrible so trust reliable good sources like two random dudes that you found on the internet <laughs> <laughs> well you know don't even just trust us i mean we don't even we trust try us. to refer yeah. yeah no i mean trust us but don't just trust us like yeah read stuff you know don't mm-hmm. don't just don't just listen to us read stuff i mean we we we, we post links to our sources on our patreon that you can yep, follow which up anybody and look. Anybody can yeah. look at, regardless of being a patron or not. Yeah, yeah. Anybody can look at can look at the links. Um, but if you if you want to, you know, put some put a few bucks our way, you get access to uh, some uh, some additional content. Yeah, special. So you should definitely special do that. after after re- recording uh, video sessions. Yeah, but you do not have to pay to look at our sources. Yeah. Yeah. So with all that being said, so what, what, what was our first topic again? <laughs> Let's talk about a nice lighthearted topic. The death and destruction of nationally protected constitutional rights. Let's do it. We'll start it. by talking about abortion. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, over our time away from the podcast in December, um, the Supreme Court ruled on uh, a lawsuit uh, that you know, was granted a writ of sociori and specifically about the Texas abortion bill. So we'll quickly recap like what that is. And then we'll talk a bit about um, what the lawsuit was and the determination that the Supreme Court made and kind of what that means going forward. So first of all, um, we've talked about this lawsuit before on the podcast, but a quick summary is, um, so the bill, Senate Bill 8 in Texas, allows any private citizen to sue anyone who helps uh, 
a person get an abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected. Typically, that's around six weeks. Um, so that includes abortion providers. Um, and if you mount an successful lawsuit, the defendant owes you at least $10,000 in damages. There's no actual limit on the amount that can be awarded uh, to the plaintiff in these cases, which again, can be literally anybody. The, the, the law also specifically bars any Texas official or law enforcement um, from enforcing the statute. So you might ask, yeah. why would you pass a law that prevents the state from enforcing it? And, and the answer is because the state cannot constitutionally enforce it. It's a yeah. deliberate attempt to get around the Constitution by making it so that the government can't enforce it, but regular citizens can enforce it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I would just like to make a quick point about the, the six-week thing. Uh, Elizabeth Nash of the Guttenmacher Institute points out the fact that, quote, people who recognize a pregnancy before six weeks would only have, at most, two weeks to decide about an abortion, make arrangements, and get care. Two weeks. Yeah. Now, most people, and that's if they're lucky. Yeah, that's like, if they're even aware. Most people, most people who get pregnant are not going to know it within six weeks. They're yeah. just not. Yep. And this idea of it, it, it starts with a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. It is, I mean, it is, it is pathos devoid yeah. of logos. Yeah. I mean, we, we, do, we put this emphasis on <laughs> to put that in the least accessible way possible. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. It, it's if you guys know what pathos and logos logic, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I am, I, I have, I, I'm still on my break. I haven't been lecturing for a while. That was, <laughs> that was, that was the teacher in me coming out. It is, it is emotion devoid of logic. All right. So yeah, we have this idea that the heartbeat is how we determine when life begins, mostly because medically it's often when we, you know, when we, what it's often the mechanism we use to determine if life has ended, you know, a person's often considered to be clinically dead yeah. if they don't have a heartbeat. Now they're not necessarily dead because a person mm. who loses a heartbeat can sometimes yeah. still be resuscitated, but yeah, there's really no yeah. scientific reason to think that that is when life begins. Um, or, or to your point, isn't necessarily when it ends. Because, like, yeah, necessarily it's just when more it convenient either. than having to carry an MRI machine around to tell if you're brain dead or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, like, already... That just does that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. All right. It makes significant. I mean, even if you are going to have restrictions on abortion, the point at which a fetus is viable to live outside of the body makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then right? and that's like the tool or the measurement that like the Supreme Court used in Roe v. Wade. The, yeah. Well, and also it was it was it was reupheld by Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that's one like, like clear problem with the Texas bill. The other one. Well, also, it's a dangerous ass precedent. I mean, 
th- think about that for a second. Think of it. Think of it from the point of view as you're you're a right winger, right? You know, you're 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 in uh, rural Virginia, which means you're probably my neighbor. And you know, you you love your guns. You hate your abortion. You loved your barbecue. Actually, you know what? Let's 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 even take you out of rural Virginia. Let's say you're in rural California. All right. You love your guns. You love your barbecue. You hate your abortions. What happens when a democratic state decides, hey, we're going to pass a law that makes it so you're not allowed to own guns. Now, the law enforcement, we're not allowed to we're not allowed to enforce it. The government's not allowed to enforce it. But if anybody sees another person selling a gun or owning a gun, they can sue them. Yeah. Would you would you be okay with that? I don't think you would. And there's no I limit. I sure as hell wouldn't. There's no limit on how much there's you can no sue limit. them for. And and I think I think to Nathan's point, like that's a really big part of this. Like in fact, that's the key that's like one of the key problems of this, which I think is ultimately beyond abortion rights. It is if you take just that aside, it's like one of the scariest parts of this legal development because you can literally just play you know a cup and ball game with who to sue right with like who to who to enact injunctive relief so that you can determine in the first place if a law is constitutional or not right and and so it it is all it does is evade uh challenge because it literally creates a private right of enforcement for essentially vigilantes. And and the other issue is that there's a reason why it's important that there's no limit on how much you could get from these defendants. Because normally, in a civil suit for damages of some kind, the damages would be determined according to some logic. It'd be like, oh, yeah. if you lost this, these wages, damages are those wages. If you lost, you know, if you lost, uh, if you had some kind of emotional or mental harm that caused you, like economic or some some measurable impact, you'll get compensation for that. There are no damages here. As a private Texas citizen, you are not impacted by the abortion of a di- another private Texas citizen. So I have no idea how courts would go about determining the upper limit to how much someone could get in these cases. Yeah. It's at least $10,000, which, and, and they collect it from the defendant in the case of a successful suit. So not only are you like, not only by the time this suit would go through, are you like, you know, preventing people from getting abortion, you are monetarily, you know, like ruining defendants in these cases yeah it's just yeah it's absolutely terrifying to just hand over the ability to uh, enforce a restriction of a constitutional right from an enforcement official who can be prevented from executing that right to vigilante citizens yeah it's terrifying and I also want to point out some of the detrimental effects of restricting abortion and also the way in which 
laws restricting abortion are a complete political football. If you honestly believe that most elected Republicans actually care about abortion, there's this really nice bridge. It's on Mars and it's made of unicorns that I would love to sell you because it is completely used to score political points. Now, Republicans, most of the time, they don't really focus much on policy. Abortion is one of the few areas in which they do focus on policy because the citizenry, the, the voters who care about abortion care a lot about abortion, all right? The, the people that are against abortion are really against abortion. But I just want to point something out. Let's steel man the anti-abortion argument for a second, all right? So let's assume that you're reasonable. Your intention is not to restrict the health of women. Your answer is not to restrict the health of, uh, the, the health of people. It's not to restrict personal freedom. It is to protect the life of a fetus, which you believe is a person, all right? So let's steel man that, and let's give you the benefit of the doubt on that. So any logical person could very quickly say, okay, well, you're not going to get rid of all abortions by making it illegal. Um, you, you're, 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 just, you're just not going to do that. So why should you make it illegal? To which the response would be, well, we at least want to do everything we can to reduce it. All right, which makes sense if you're someone who's against abortion. And the best way to do that is to ban them. Right? That's what wrong. the argument, that's what the argument goes. That's what the argument would go, but it's wrong. All right? So according to the Guttenmacher Institute, when you look at countries, and this is classified in four different ways, all right? Uh, it's classified as in the category of broadly legal, allowed to, to preserve health, allowed only to save a woman's life, or prohibited altogether. All right? So let's look at the rate, the, the abortion rate, and the rate of unintended pregnancies. So first off, among countries where it's broadly legal, unintended pregnancies happen 58% of the time. The abortion rate... So 58% of... So 58, 58% of pregnancies are accidental. Pregnancies are unintended. Yeah, are accidental. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. So then the abortion rate is 40%. All right? The abortion rate is 40%. Wow. In cases where they're allowed to preserve health. Unintended pregnancy, 75%. Abortion rate, 36. Just 4% mm. lower than where it's broadly legal. All right. Allowed only to save a woman's life. 70% of pregnancies are unintended, 36% abortions. Hmm. All right? Same as when it's allowed to preserve health. And then, prohibited altogether, 80% of pregnancies are unintended, and 40% of pregnancies uh, end in abortion. 40% when it's prohibited altogether, 40% when it's broadly legal. But keep in mind, those are percentages, not raw numbers. When you think about the fact 
that where it's prohibited altogether, you have 80% of pregnancies being unintended and 58% being unintended in broadly legal when it when it's broadly mm. legal you because you end up having more unintended pregnancies the raw number of abortions ends up being more so that 40% is 40% of a significantly higher number so the way to reduce the number of abortions based on this data is not necessarily to restrict abortions because restricting abortions does not cut down on the abortion rate. And in fact, these numbers that I just read to you are actually a little bit skewed because of China and India, whose populations are significantly higher. If you take China and India out of the equation, the abortion rate is higher in countries that restrict abortion accents than those that do not. Higher. All right. So then the logical solution, if you are actually against abortions, is not to ban abortions. It is to do other things that reduce abortions. Now, one of the yeah. biggest reasons why you have the, the, one of the biggest reasons why you have significantly lower levels of unintended pregnancy in countries that um in countries that where it's broadly legal is because countries where abortion is broadly legal also tends to be countries that are number one, higher income, but number two, you end up mm -hmm. having more social equality. There's more social progress, which means better access to sex education. That is how you cut yeah. down on abortion. All right. When people are more financially stable and they're better educated about sex. So if if you actually want to cut down on abortions, the way you do it is not through banning them. The way you do it is attack poverty yep. and uh, and increase your sex education, yep. have better sex education. Higher and free contraceptions, contraceptives. And free contraception. Uh, would help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you actually care about fighting abortion, that is what you do. So with that being said, we've we've attacked kind of multiple sides of this Texas law. One, banning abortion is a stupid idea. <laughs> Two, introducing a new private right of action against a like a non-private harm, which is what this is, even if, if you contend that abortion is a public harm or whatever they the state contends in order to be able to legislate against it. Um, terrible idea. And um, overall, like, this is unconstitutional because it restricts, is an undue burden on abortion. So yeah. with all that laid out, we should consider what the Supreme Court had in front of them and what determination they made. So what the Supreme Court was reviewing was not the direct question of the constitutionality of the law, but rather whether the uh, named defendants, right? So the plaintiffs in, these case, in this case was abortion providers, and the defendants in this case were, uh, fell into a couple of different groups. Um, private court uh, clerks and uh, court judges and uh, state licensing officials, people that provide uh, 
licenses for medical personnel. Um, and so, so you might ask, like, well, why are they going after court clerks and judges? That's kind of a weird thing. So first of all, this is all; these were all like pre-enactment, pre-enforcement um, uh, lawsuits, right? They're trying to prevent this law from being um, used against people to prevent them from providing abortions. The typical way to do that is to file a lawsuit enjoining a public official responsible for enforcing the law from doing so. There is no public official responsible for in, in, uh, enforcing the law in this case. In fact, they're specifically barred from doing that. So in order to find people that uh, are, are part of this process that we could enjoin from, from doing that, the plaintiffs in this case settled on uh, the court parties that would be responsible for accepting and filing lawsuits against people uh, providing abortions. So in that case, court clerks and judges. So the goal here was to stop them from receiving and processing suits filed under the abortion law. Um, this was a tactic that was used by the Biden administration um, where they asked a federal judge to temporarily order courts not to accept any lawsuits under the law. Um, the problem with this is something called sovereign immunity, where you actually can't sue uh, government entities, right? You can sue individuals, right? But you can't sue government entities. And so the rule provides that you can't sue local government officials and court clerks and judges when acting in their like in this capacity, right? So you can sue like a sheriff who's enforcing a law to prevent him from enforcing an unconstitutional law, but you can't sue a court clerk for filing, for doing the job of filing lawsuits that have been provided, right? And so that's basically what the Supreme Court found in this case, is that uh, court clerks, judges, those public officials were not proper defendants and so could not be sued in this case, could not be enjoined, prevented from filing these lawsuits, right? It also found that the U.S. government lacked standing to intervene, and so the lawsuit by Joe Biden's DOJ uh, was thrown out. Um, it, the, the Supreme Court left in place one category of defendants in this case, which are state officials uh, responsible for providing licenses. And the reason they were included, right, is they were, it was intended to enjoin them, to prevent them from restricting licenses to, you know, doctors and medical officials, right? Those people were allowed to be uh, sued by this law. The problem is that's not really part of the enforcement mechanism here. So, it's not really, it's like, it is like one of the potential downsides of violating this law as an abortion provider, but the much bigger downside is being able to be sued by the public for financial recompense, right? And so, you know, that's actually the only part of this lawsuit that is still going forward after the Supreme Court's review, right? So the Supreme Court reviewed the lawsuit and found that 
everyone uh, except for those state licensing officials was not a proper defendant in this case and so remanded the, the, the lawsuit back down to a lower court. Um, the thing is, Texas could like prevent this, you know, un- this constitutionality question from even going to the court at any point, right? Um, by explicitly in the law preventing licensing officials from enforcing it, just like they did with um, other state law enforcement officials. By doing that, you remove a category of defendant, right? The last one. There are, if there are no defendants, there's no case. And then the Supreme Court at the state or the federal level would never review the constitutionality question. Um, and, and ultimately, like, even if these licensing officials were prevented from, you know, you know, taking licenses away from medical personnel to provide abortions, it makes almost no difference because the main enforcement mechanism here is, as we've talked about, the public being able to sue you. Um, And at this point, so at this point, the Supreme Court remanded this down to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, right? This is a three-judge panel um, reviewing the appeal of this lawsuit. Um, That three-judge panel looks like they are going to send it back to the state Supreme Court. This whole process is going to take months. Meanwhile, the law (laughs) is still good law in Texas. Uh, People are being sued. Abortion access has fallen dramatically. And abortion seekers are going across state lines. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, And like, even when this gets to the Supreme court in Texas, um, there's no clear path to, uh, reviewing the constitutionality question, which is, is like a big problem. The fact that like abortion is still substantively illegal in Texas, Texas has found a way around Roe v. Wade, as it currently stands, and Texas has introduced a new mechanism to withhold constitutional rights from the 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 citizens of a state, um, which will do probably irrevocable harm to our country. Yeah, and other states are already considering similar type laws. Uh, Similar bills have been introduced in Alabama, Mm -hmm. Florida, Missouri, Ohio. Uh, Just this week, a uh, a rep in Oklahoma said he was planning on trying to introduce a a similar bill. Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous precedent. Yeah. And and as Nathan said, it's not just dangerous. uh, It's not just about, you know, dangerous for abortion. Like... California yeah. and Illinois are drafting lawsuits um, to allow individuals to sue uh, gun manufacturers and people that import and sell t- certain types of guns. Um, New York is talking about doing the same thing. And like, whatever. Do you want that? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but that's the thing. Whatever you think about the Second Amendment, this yeah. is not the way to decide it. 
right? Like states being able to circumvent the current interpretation of the Constitution uh, by setting up a vigilante system for individuals to be able to enforce the law of their own accord is, well, Justice Sonia Sotomayor in her dissent wrote that it, quote, leaves all manner of constitutional rights more vulnerable than ever before. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing. The the other problem here is that even if in a few months or a few years abortion returns to Texas because this law is found to be unconstitutional as it clearly is. Um there may not be any more clinics to go to to get an abortion. So yeah. like presumably they would return eventually. Um but but Amy Miller, president of Whole Women's Health, the plaintiff in this case, who op- which operates four clinics in Texas, um warned that quote staying open is not sustainable if this ban stays in effect much longer. We're grateful for the donors and foundations and folks who have been supporting us in the interim, but the future looks bleak if we can't get some justice here. They just can't stay open. And so earlier, when I was talking about abortion rates Mm. in countries where it's banned altogether, one of the things that I didn't directly say but should have been implied is that If the abortion rate is 40% and that is in a country where it is prohibited altogether, that means all of those abortions are not happening legally, which means it's back alley abortions, it's coat hangers, it's unsafe methods that often end with death. Yeah. That's what happens. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because we don't talk about Bruno. No, no. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about Bruno. No, no. Mm -hmm. And to those of you who have watched that movie recently, you're welcome. That song is now stuck in your head again, (laughs) as it has been in mine for the last three weeks (laughs) i feel like you gotta see somebody about the 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 rate at which song (laughs) like the length of time songs stay in your head (laughs) yeah that does not make the world a better place no it's but you know what does make the world a better place what tips tips for good tips for good that's 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 actually usually the Mm. main reason why we do them yeah that's a really good we should Write that down. Let's let's so do next that. time. Let's yeah. Ne- Maybe that'll time, be our tip. Write down that why should we be do it. tips for good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike's, what is our tip for good this week? This week, our tip for good could not be more basic or more obvious, and that is to get boosted. So, every week we talk about COVID talk about deaths we talk about vaccination rates we're starting to get up there on vaccination rates it's really exciting but you know what covid slaps back (laughs) so currently 36.3 percent of people who have been fully vaccinated 
have received a booster. A third, one third, just over a third of people who have been vaccinated have received a booster. You already got vaccinated fully. Get get another shot because the Omicron variant reduces the effectiveness at preventing hospitalization of the two-dose vaccines to 72%, down from like the mid-90s. When you get a booster, it brings it back up to around 88%. So... That's higher. That's higher than 72. <laughs> it's not as high as it, we could be with this, you know, Omicron-specific vaccine that they're developing. But it's easy. It's free. It's free. And it could keep you out of the hospital. And that could keep unlike, you alive. Unlike TurboTax, it actually is free. <laughs> <laughs> so just like... We, I know it's sometimes hard to find places, you know, there was a lot of demand for boosters recently, but the 36.3% number speaks for itself. Like, we know there are some of you out there. Everybody should be able to get it at this point. Um, if you don't know where to get it, look it up. It's really easy to find. You can get them in a lot of places, including CVS and and just like normal drugstores. So just get boosted, y'all. And that's tips for good. So for our second segment, we are talking about, um, man, I, I clicked so loud on the mic, sorry. So for our second segment, we are talking about um, a policy, you know, often championed by progressives um, that, you know, we hadn't really dug too deeply into. We've talked about it kind of in passing a few times, but we hadn't like delved in. And that is yeah. student loan forgiveness. Yeah. Usually when we've talked about it in the past, we've kind of talked about it as self-evidently a good thing. And I, I think that it is in a lot of ways, but that doesn't change the fact that there are going to be a lot of people that are going to make arguments against yeah. it. Because, I don't know. Well, I mean, there are some arguments <laughs> against it. You know, like, I mean, there, there are some, yeah. Yeah, there are some, there there are are some, some reasons why one might not support it. And, and the question is, you know, are those reasons good or yeah. not? I would contend that a major reason why a lot of like elitists might be against it is because if you can restrict education, uh, you can restrict people's ability to, you know, to realize, hey, you guys are fucking us over. Um, but that's just that's just conspiratorial me. Um, let's focus on steel manning the argument, though. All right. So as Michael said, there are some legitimate things that people will say about student loan forgiveness. I think that the most compelling argument at this point is the focus on the fact that most of the student debt currently held in the country is held by people in higher income households. So according to the Brookings Institute, the top 40% of households own 60% of the outstanding education debt, all right? And they currently, and this is another important thing that we'll get to later, they currently make up three quarters of the current payments. The lowest 40%, on the other hand, hold 20% of the outstanding debt and make up only 10% of the payments. So on the surface, you might look at that and think, well, then that means 
that the primary people that student loan forgiveness would help would be rich people, all right? Because the idea behind student loans originally was you borrow some money now, you go to college, you get a job that will make it so that you're paid more than if you didn't go to college, and then you use that excess money to pay off your loans, all right? That's the idea. At least that's, the, that's what we're sold. Hmm. So a person could make a compelling argument, and this argument has been made by quite a few people. I see this argument a lot on Fox News, so you know it's good. Um, the argument that is made then is that student loan forgiveness is asking poor people to subsidize rich people. All right? And on the surface, that's a pretty compelling argument. All right? Mm -hmm. However, let's look a little bit more in depth into those numbers. So first off, let's remember, we talked about how the top 40% make up three quarters of the payments. What that means is that those people are the people that are able to currently pay. All right. Yeah. The reason why they're making the payments is because they can afford to make the payments. All right. Yeah. The lowest 40% making up 20% of the debt, but only 10% of the payments means that those are the households that are the most hit by the inability to pay. So yeah. let's go a little bit more in depth into some of the effects of student loans. First off, it is important to note the current total number of student debt in the United States totals $1.75 trillion. Uh, and the data that I'm about to read is from the, um, the Education Data Initiative. All right. So as it stands, approximately 42.9 million Americans have an average of $37,000 uh, $37, in federal debts. The average public university student borrows approximately 30000 to get a, a bachelor's degree. As it stands, when we're, we're looking at the, the impacts of people that, 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 as it stands, when we look at the effects of people that are in debt, um, for every 1%, of a student's debt to income ratio, their consumption declines by as much as 3.7%, meaning that they're spending less money in the economy, even less money than how much is increasing in their debt to income ratio. Now, keep in mind, when a person takes out student debt, they have to pay interest. Now, sometimes, in fact, quite often, the increase based on interest equals more than the amount the student is paying per month, which means that interest is adding to the value of their debt faster than they can pay it off. 35% of student loan holders find it difficult to buy daily necessities because of their, their student loans. Um, student debt currently is the second largest type of household credit behind mortgages. 
After 20 years of entering school, half of student borrowers still owe 20000 each on outstanding loan balances. That's after 20 years of, of entering college. All right? Hmm. It's inhibiting growth. So at least 11% of would-be entrepreneurs are less likely to start new businesses if they owe more than 30000 in student debt. Hmm. All right? Businesses, uh, businesses with fewer than 20 employees create 1.2 million jobs annually. That is a significant number, which means that less people are starting small businesses, which is, which is detrimental to the economy. Students with outstanding hmm. student loan payments are also 36% less likely to purchase a house. In fact, 13.32% of millennial renters indicate that they will never be able to afford to buy a home because of student debt. And we know that and that is fact, a huge, that a home ownership is like a huge source of, it's, one, it's most people's largest single asset. It's a huge source of, of wealth growth and wealth transfer from generation to generation. Yeah. Furthermore, it stresses social programs. All right. Mm -hmm. So looking at those people, even if it is technically a minority, it is still a large chunk of people that are lower income currently that hold debt. One out of every five recipients of food stamps have a post-secondary degree. Degree holders are only mm. half as likely as non-degree holders to use SNAP. Half as likely. Mm. That, like, I mean, obviously, you know, yeah. non-degree holders tend to have a lower income. 24% yeah. of Medicaid users, a quarter, hold post-secondary degrees. A quarter of Medicaid mm. users have post-secondary degrees. So basically, these, these, th these former students' inabilities to pay off their debt, we end up subsidizing them anyway because we mm -hmm. pay taxes into the social programs that they have to use because they can't afford to make expenses. Yeah. Because they are too deep in debt. Yeah. And that debt is often a vicious cycle. You know, you get, you like, it starts with student loan debt. You, you know, that restricts your income. So you don't have very much excess cash. So you start getting into other types of debt, like credit card debt. It's much more expensive, um, and but you just need the money to be able to like buy groceries and stuff, and then you know you start maxing those the like, credit cards out, and you end up getting into other more high interest types of types of debt. It can be a really uh, vicious cycle starting out your career with a significant amount of debt. Um, I mean. The default rate within five years of leaving school for undergrads who went to for-profit schools, for two-year programs, it was 41%. For four-year four programs, it was 33%. A third of people that go to a four-year for-profit school default on their loans within five years. That, yeah. is, cra that is ridiculous. And that, is, that can be financially ruinous. Like it destroys your credit score, which is, you know, required for 
a lot of things, including getting an apartment, getting, you yeah. know, being able to own a home someday because it, it impacts your ability to, to get a mortgage. The other thing that, that I am constantly thinking about when I think about something like a loan payment is the impact on your ability to grow well, wealth and retire someday. Like yeah. just to save enough money to retire, um, which let's note, if you don't save enough money to retire, we'll still have to put you on a social safety net program anyway. So it's not like this is free, you know, And but it's like, but think about it this way. If you pay 250 bucks a month for your student loans, right? And say you pay off your student loans. You don't have that many. So you pay off your student loans at 250 bucks a month in 20 years, right? If you had taken that same $250 a month for 20 years and, and invested it in a basic stock market like index fund, right? Like a basic retirement account and you invested that same money over t- amount of money over 20 years from the time you're 18. By the time you retire... That two hundred fifty bucks a month will be worth more than seven hundred thousand dollars. So, like, think about it like this: you're you're working to pay off this chunk of debt that could be like twenty thousand dollars or whatever, because of interest yeah. and compounding. It's hard to pay that down. If you take that same amount of money and turn it into a, a growing wealth asset, it's worth more than seven hundred thousand dollars to you later on. Like, that's the kind of growth that we can be in wealth that we can be providing to people by forgiving their debt. Yeah. And as is almost always the case, there is also a hint of racial inequality in the way mm. debt piles up. So four years after graduation, 48%, almost half of black students owe an average of 12.5% more than they borrowed. Four years after graduation, they owe more than they borrowed. After that same time period, 83% of white students owe 12% less, less than they borrowed. So I, I, the re, one of the reasons why I'm pointing this out is because one of the rants that I saw on Fox News recently uh, pointed out the fact that um, black people in the United States are less likely to have student debt than, than white students. Now, that's true. And a, a huge reason for that is that black people are less likely to go to college than white people because... Black people are more likely to live in poverty than white people. So it's kind of a dishonest point in that specific regard. But the point that this person was trying to make was, oh, yeah, you're asking a, bun- you're asking a bunch of um, poor black people to, uh, to subsidize rich white people. No. That's just, that's just not the case. The people that are suffering the most from the detrimental effects of student loans. Yeah, some, of, some people that... You know, a lot of people that have student debt, they might be upper class, upper middle class, mostly middle class. But the people whom it's holding back the most are those people that 
have a lower socioeconomic status, that are unable to get houses, that are unable to, um, that are unable to start businesses that in which they can start, um, they can start investing more in the economy. Mm-hmm. All right. And also, let's think about the reason why people of a higher socioeconomic status are more likely to go to college than people in a lower socioeconomic status. It's because they can't fucking afford it. It's because Mm -hmm. they don't think they're ever going to be able to afford it because college tuition currently costs significantly more than it did like when our parents went to college if your parents went mm-hmm. to college. All right? Tuition rates have skyrocketed. So the solution to that would be tuition-free college, which Michael and I have talked about on yeah. several occasions. So if you're really worried about the idea of like poor people subsidizing rich people, okay, then cancel student debt and yeah. make colleges and universities tuition free. Yep. See, boom. See, that's, that's the problem with, <laughs> that's the problem with the art, like making these, trying to use these progressive arguments against progressive issues like this. Like they're trying to say, because so many things well, are interlocked. Yeah. They're trying to say, well, you like progressive arguments. So I'm going to make a progressive argument and like you don't like regressive policies, so I'm going to call this regressive, and so then you're going to be hoisted by your own petard. But the problem is that, well, a couple of things. One, we have the ability to prioritize. So like, would it be yeah. great um, if we did comprehensive education reform, tuition-free college? Yep, absolutely. Is that going to get done? No, because the people, the same people that are making these arguments trying to, to pretend to like make these progressive arguments when they don't actually care about progressive policies um, are, are blocking things like that from getting done, right? Uh, would it be great if um, we had social safety net programs that you know, perfectly targeted uh, people of lower economic status? Yes, that'd be awesome. We're not really doing that. We're not investing in those programs. We're not creating new... Uh, innovative legislation to help those people. Um, What we might be able to do is take a generation of people heavily in debt, experiencing all kinds of financial hardship. We might actually be able to take money and help them through that by relieving a portion of their debt. Like, it might not be the perfectly targeted policy, right? But we're not going to do those other policies because the people that are making these arguments are standing in the way. It might not be the perfect, it might not be the solution to higher education, but right now we can't get the solution to higher education because the people that are making these arguments are standing in the way. But we might be able to get done is student loan forgiveness because they can't stand in the way of that. Because Biden could potentially do that with an executive order. And I, I, there's one last point that I want to make. I don't have any student loans. I don't have any student debt. I never took any student loans. You know why? 
It's because my parents paid for my bachelor's degree because they were financially able to pay for my bachelor's degree. I didn't take out any student loans for my master's degree. You know why? Because I got an assistantship. I was able to get a tuition waiver for it. That never would have happened if I hadn't had the opportunities that I had in, in, uh, for my bachelor's degree in, in undergrad. And I would not have had those opportunities if it weren't for the fact that my parents paid for my way to go to college. I did a lot of extracurriculars that significantly increased my ability to get that assistantship that I got. Mm -hmm. I would never have been able to do that if I were not financially dependent on my parents while I was in undergraduate school. And because of that, I have no student debt whatsoever. So do you really think that somebody like me that comes from a family that is, I mean, upper middle class, that I deserve that opportunity, but other people don't because they were not lucky enough to be born in a family with those in, 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 in that financial situation? See, my wife, she has student loans because she did not grow up in a family that was that was upper middle class and we are going to be paying off our student loans together now why am i more worthy than she is the answer is i'm not yes i worked my ass off in undergrad and graduate school but i was given the opportunity to do it because i didn't have to worry about finances as much And now it's time for our favorite segment, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, we have a newcomer this week. We have never mm. heard of this guy. In fact, nobody has ever heard of this guy. I'm not even sure <laughs> that his... I'm not even He's sure that his own... <laughs> I'm not even sure that his own parents have heard of him. <laughs> um, he is a uh, Senate state representative... Scott Baldwin mm. from the great state of Indiana. Scotty Baldy, come on Scotty down. Scotty Baldy. Mm, that's a nice Scotty one. Scotty Baldy. <laughs> so what did Scotty Baldy do to get on our show? All the way from like a state rep in Indiana. That's uh it's pretty hard to get on our yeah. radar. He must have been yeah. a real asset. Yeah. State state senate. State senate. All right. Oh, state you senate. Know, Sorry. You're state right. State senate. Right. Yeah. Uh, the honor <laughs> that he is due. A state senate in Indiana. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so our, uh, our, our intrepid Scotty Baldy, uh, Scott Baldwin, you know how teachers are always giving their opinions on things, you know, mm. like, like I, I know that you are homeschooled, but mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that teachers are known for yep. is talking about editorializing. Um, is, is, yeah. yeah. Is editorializing. Mm -hmm. Um, so he introduced a bill Just that would ban quote, shit up in the classroom. Yeah. Th <laughs> that would ban quote divisive concepts in classrooms. Now you might ask, what do you mean by classroom concepts or, or divisive concepts? Well, he explains it. So he said, quote, and this was on the floor of the, uh, of the Senate of Indiana quote. Marxism, Nazism, fascism. I have no problem with the education system providing instruction on the existence of those isms. 
I believe that we've gone too too far when we take a position. We need to be impartial. Hmm. About Nazism and fascism and Marxism. On everything? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's telling that he groups all those together. To be fair, <laughs> but um, well, okay. To guy, to, to uh, give him the benefit of the doubt, worse. To give him the the, the give him the, fen- the to give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that when he's talking about Marxism, he's specifically talking about uh, Soviet-style authoritarianism. All right, just to yeah. just to give him the yeah. benefit of the doubt. All right, even if that's what he's talking about. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Teachers need so to be impartial like... about Nazism. Yeah. Like, so, so, so does, I guess that means that you just have to make, student... you have to let everybody make up their own minds about, you know, murder. Yeah. You can't well, just condemn I, murder. <laughs> well, I guess what that means is, I mean, if you're in, if you're in class and, you know, one of the students starts saying, Hey, where's all the Jews in the class? I want to kill them all. As a teacher, you can't you can't send them to the principal's office. You can't get them in trouble because you got to be impartial. They're just expressing their opinions. <laughs> They're just expressing and, and their opinions. As sad as it is that that's actually something we should ha- we actually have to worry about at this point in our nation's history. Yeah. yeah. Um, we should be able to take a position on that student's that student's opinion. That's yeah. just full stop. And what's funny, what's funny is he tried to walk it back mm-hmm. in the most hilariously dishonest way possible. So uh, he said, quote, Nazism, Marxism, and fascism are a stain on our world history and should be regarded as such. I failed to adequately articulate that in my comments during the meeting. I believe that kids should learn about those horrible events in history so that we don't experience them again in humanity. Uh, okay. So you failed to adequately articulate them by saying literally the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> yeah, by introducing a bill that would <laughs> that would prevent them yeah, from you being said they need to be impartial. Like I, I failed to <laughs> adequately articulate the fact that we should be telling students that Nazism and fascism are stains on our history and are bad. By saying that we need to be impartial <laughs> on those. It sounds like fuck? he failed to adequately articulate that he is full of shit. <laughs> yeah. And again, he, he said yeah. again, he told the Washington Post later um, that he, that quote, the teachers should quote, uh, condemn those dangerous ideologies. He said, quote, I sincerely regret that I did not articulate that and apologize for it. You, you, Okay. You didn't say that. You didn't yeah. mean it. <laughs> like you said also, the opposite like, of that. It's only partially the problem that you said Nazism and and fascism are like things we shouldn't take a position on. Trying to ban yeah. divisive concepts from the classroom is Yeah more of the problem <laughs> i mean you wouldn't probably yeah. have gotten to be an asset without without saying that nazi we shouldn't take a position on nazis <laughs> yeah. but like <laughs> yeah wow so you know you know congratulations, well, congratulations 
for coming out of obscurity. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sincerely a hope meteoric that now rise your into has, has, hattery. Yeah. I hope that your parents know who you are now. So congratulations <laughs> to Scott Baldwin for being our ass hat of, of the, the week. week. So it is no secret that members of Congress, some of them, are pretty fucking wealthy. Somehow, these humble civil servants have risen to the level of the top 10% of wealthiest individuals in the nation. With, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in net worth. And one might ask, for these people whose annual salary is $174,000 a year. How the fuck does that happen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, for some of them, they wrote a book, and it did well, and they got got some money off of it. For some of them. Not all of them. (laughs) Not all of them are professional (laughs) authors. Uh, But some of them, that's, that's how they managed to make some money. Sure. But yeah. of course, that is not always the case. Mm-hmm. And so after you get into Congress, uh, the question remains. It's a full-time job for most of these folks. Um, <clears throat> so what we're talking about today is a major source of wealth and also conflict of interest for members of Congress. And that is which is a nice way of saying corruption. To, yeah, conflict of interest is corruption, and 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 uh, and that is their ability to invest into individual stocks, because like you know stocks investing uh, is something that many fine Americans do. Stocks are a big part of the free market. They're a major way that many people grow their wealth. Um, one of the things that's definitely wrong, illegal. Uh, immoral and downright un-American, I'd say, is insider trading. And that is where you have insider information about a company or or an event that's going to occur. And so you trade on that non-public information to make a profit. And that is insider trading. And that is illegal. In fact, that the fact that that's illegal is one of the major things, one of the only safeguards for protecting fairness in our financial markets. So, of course, members of Congress responsible for crafting laws that affect companies, for holding hearings that investigate companies, um, who get advanced information and notice about some public events like global pandemics. So, of course, those (laughs) people can't trade on that information, right? Because that would be un-American. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. So Business Insider actually did a really great in-depth look at some of these conflicts of interest. So as it stands, current laws are already pretty flimsy. Mm-hmm. Weak as shit. Uh, yep. They're weak as shit. Like most of the laws are about disclosure. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the Stock Act is supposed to 
is supposed to prevent um, these these reps and and also staffers for that matter for from being able to basically profit and then hide that profit. Mm -hmm. And Business Insider actually did a extremely in-depth look at each of the people in Congress. So in order to do this, um, they spent, uh, they spent hundreds of hours over five months reviewing nearly 9,000 financial disclosure reports for every sitting lawmaker and their top breaking staffers. Hmm. All right. They conducted hundreds of interviews, including those with some of the most powerful leaders. And here's what they found. So first off, they found that at least 182 top congressional staffers are violating the Stock Act. Hmm. 182. They ranked 13 members of Congress as being in danger currently of violating the Stock Act and over 100 as basically being on the borderline. Hmm. Now, most of them were actually solid, which I was almost surprised by. <laughs> but keep in mind, that's not necessarily like that they're not, that, that they don't have conflicts of interest, yeah. that they're not yep. investing in stocks. Yeah. That just means that they are, they're being, that, that they're disclosing yeah, it, exactly. that they're showing it adequately. All right. When we're looking at the people that actually, um, that actually own stocks, all right, as it stands, nearly 75 lawmakers held stocks in COVID-19 vaccine makers, Moderna, hmm. Johnson Johnson, and, Fa and Pfizer in 2020. Hmm. And many of them were buying or selling those stocks in the early weeks of the pandemic. Hmm, <laughs> I wonder why that could have happened. <laughs> Interesting. 75 lawmakers, 15 lawmakers who are currently tasked with shaping U.S. defense policy actively invest in military contractors. More than a dozen environmentally minded Democrats invest in fossil fuel companies. 16 lawmakers currently have stocks in tobacco companies. Mm -hmm. Like... The cartoonish bad guys. <laughs> the cartoonish bad guys. Yeah. It is a major problem. And and that there are people that are on committees yeah. that specifically shape the policy that helps these companies and they financially benefit by owning stocks. Yeah. And to be fair, like insider trading is still legal for these people, right? Like if they if they get insider information from a company and trade on it, like they can still be prosecuted. Um, and yeah, non-disclosing like trades under the stock act, you know, is illegal. It comes with a hefty $200 fine. Um, and, <laughs> and, and the thing is like, it's not very common for, you know, even insider trading to be, uh, you know, to be prosecuted. And it's, and like the typical definition of insider trading, trading, like having insider information about a specific company is only one of the, 
like potential sources of insider information that they could have, right? Like, so several members of Congress, as Nathan was referring to, traded on non-public information about the potential impacts of COVID-19. And so far, none have faced criminal charges. Like, Senator Richard Burr lost his position as chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which I think that comes with a pay bump, so, you know, he lost a little bit of money there, but like, I'm sure he made up for it by investing in Moderna and Pfizer and all that. Um, and the thing yeah. is, notice, trading on insider information about companies is illegal. Legislating to benefit companies that you own is not illegal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like, so like the, the conflict of interest is blatant. And and let's yeah. just pause, just like, let me just quickly geek out about just a little bit of investment theory. Just a little bit. It's okay. I'll, I'll, be, I'll keep it short. <laughs> Investing in individual stocks is a bad idea unless you think you have information that other people don't have, right? The, the, that is based on the efficient market hypothesis. Basically, all relevant information about that, that is confirmed about a stock is priced into the marketplace as it fluctuates from day to day, right? So we've got millions of people who are, or hundreds of thousands of people who are actively monitoring stocks, actively looking at industries, looking at the economy, trying to anticipate what's happening next. And so the information is priced into the stocks. So it actually... Um, and study upon study show this, people that trade individual stocks consistently underperform the returns from a general market portfolio because unless you have insider information, you can't beat the wisdom of the market, of the market when it comes to stocks. So yeah. why, I might ask you, would these people in Congress want to hold Exxon, Raytheon, and, the, and all these other stocks? Well... The implication is that they know something we don't know or they're willing to do something that we can't do in order to yes. benefit, you know, their own wealth. Yes. And interestingly enough, there is a potential solution. So first off, I just want to get this out of the way. People in Congress and their dependents should not be allowed to own stocks. Just plain and simple, full stop, they should not be allowed to own stocks. All right? And when I say in their dependents, I mean if they have a kid who's a dependent or their spouses should not be allowed to own stocks. Plain and simple, full stop. All right? I would I would caveat that personally. I think I think like owning individual stocks, I totally agree with you. Owning like what is more typical for like a you know market portfolio which is like basically every single stock right where you just like own a tiny sliver of every single stock on the exchange um or like specifically energy stocks or like specifically tech stocks like i'd say like that might be more okay although like the closer the more narrow you get the less okay it gets i think but like I wouldn't yeah. want like no Congress member to ever to be able to buy an index fund, which is just the whole market, in which case their incentives are aligned. If the U.S. economy grows, the stock grows. Things go well. Great. 
I would may I may caveat that by saying that they should not be able to actively manage any of their stuff. They shouldn't be able to choose what's sold or not. They should have it all in like a blind trust managed by a trustee. I think that's ultimately like the best thing. Um, just because like if you don't own stocks every single year, you're losing money. It's like it's actually like financial suicide to not like have some kind of growing asset. Um, so and I, I don't want to condemn our lawmakers to that. So I would caveat it that way. Um, but certainly like no individual stock selection, probably no industrial like portfolio selection. And like, I don't think they should be able to actively manage any of that shit directly. Yeah. I don't know. Cause like at the end of the day, I think their primary source of income should be the income that they get from their status as a public servant. Like if you are a public servant, then there should be things that you have to give up. Like, I think that, um, you know, make sure that they're fairly compensated so that they have no need to ever go anywhere. But like, I I don't know. I, I, I would need to, I would need to think more about what you said, but like, you know, but let's, let's go and operate under the assumption that, we're talking specifically about individual stocks. So as it stands, there's actually been a bill that has been introduced, actually two different bills that have been introduced in the Senate to uh, end stock trading by members of Congress. Now, brace yourself. I'm about to say something nice about two people that I don't think I've ever said anything nice about. Um, Josh Hawley insurrectionist yeah that's josh a surprise Hawley. that josh holly and kevin mccarthy oh god <laughs> that kevin mccarthy <laughs> i'm about to say nice things about them uh, I'm trigger also warning say i'm nice about things. to say nice things about kevin mccarthy <laughs> and josh holly i'm also gonna say things about say nice things about uh john ossoff mm-hmm. um no who, surprise there i gotta say <laughs> new well well i mean i, I don't know the guy yeah, like he's new. a he's a new He's he's brand new in the Senate. I I had no idea what to think of him. This is the first thing that I'm. This is the first wave I'm seeing him make, and so far, you know, me likey. Um, Best thing to come out of Georgia so, since the peach. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, anyways, uh, John Ossoff and Josh Hawley have both introduced bills to end stock trading by members of Congress. Now, there are a few minor differences. Um, The minor differences are, uh, number one, so Asif's bill includes dependent children, whereas Holly's does not. And under Asif's bill, which I should also go ahead and, you know, side credit, um, He's working with uh, Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona on this bill as well. So credit to Mark Kelly as mm-hmm. well. Um, they would be fined the entirety of their congressional salary if they violate mm-hmm. this. Whereas um, Holly's bill would basically require violators to forfeit profit gains from stock trading done from stock trading directly to the U.S. Yeah, which is I actually like that. Yeah, better. that's the normal. Uh, well. I think it's like 2x or 3x profit from stock trading done as a result of ins- insider trading, but that's like a pretty typical uh, result yeah. of like insider trading violations. Yeah. And I think 
I like I like Holly's enforcement better, and I like Asaf's scope mm. better. So combine those, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> um, these are good ideas. Yes. Like these are good bills, and Kevin McCarthy has already expressed support for it, and he's basically said that if Republicans take the house in 2022 that this will be something that they take up awesome which is wow. a really good strategy that is a really really good strategy that is how they mm -hmm. win now i don't want them to sure. win but that's how you win here's how you don't win all right you don't win when you go on television and say well i mean i don't think that we should ban them because it's a free market which Nancy Pelosi fucking Liberal said. bastion. Progressive matriarch. Nancy Pelosi. Big surprise. Yeah, progressive matriarch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she said, we are a free market economy. They should be able to participate in that. Except it's not a free yeah. market economy when they have insider information. We, we spent this and also whole episode have the talking ability about that. to change things. Yeah. <laughs> if you have control over the future of an industry or a company... And you have insider insider information about the future of an ins, uh, industry or a company. That's insider information. Insider information is not a fair, free economy. Nancy Pelosi, yeah. you butthole. And again, my other point, why would you even want to do that unless you thought you had information other people didn't have? Yeah. Well... And, and, you know, Chuck Schumer wasn't much better. He just kind of dodged it and said, I don't own any stocks. <laughs> okay. Then it should be an easy thing to answer. Like, Republicans are better on this issue than Democrats right mm -hmm. now. Republicans it's funny. Yeah, are better on this issue. It's a weird point issue. of alignment between progressive Republicans and staunch, or progressive Democrats and staunch Republicans. Well, I don't even, again, I don't even necessarily know if Asaf is a progressive. I don't. I, I. I don't know much about him. Yeah, but like Warren fact, and, and AOC are yeah, both like supporting. Yeah, Warren the and AOC, and, of course. You know, and Bernie and all that. But like, but the point is, this right here. This isn't just about right versus left, or even progressive versus like not progressive. This is about corrupt versus not corrupt. Yeah. And you know, look, there are true believers in Congress who legitimately believe the bullshit that they say. Yeah. Like, look, Josh Hawley is a fucking idiot, terrible mm -hmm. human being. And I honestly do believe that he th believes all of the bullshit that he says. Yeah. I honestly do believe that. That's what He's makes him so horrible. Being. That's yeah, that's <laughs> part of what makes him so horrible. But yeah, the fact that he is supporting this, the fact that he is, he has introduced his own bill for this. The fact that Kevin McCarthy is planning on making this a campaign strategy for Republicans, which, God damn it. <laughs> Missed that boat, didn't we? <laughs> this should have been an easy win for Democrats. Yep. All right? They need to... They need to do it right now. They need to hop now. on board this immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need to do it Take right now. Take the wind out of the Republican sails for that. Because, like, th this, is the, this is probably the only thing I've heard Republicans talk about where they actually were saying something substantive. And if mm -hmm. they are the ones that are saying this, so as it stands, um, like banning 
members of Congress and their spouses from stock trading is supported by 76% of the public. All right. You don't oh want to be on the wrong gosh. side of 76%. You you literally can't get 76% of people to agree that the the earth is round. Like, <laughs> like That's so, remarkable. Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful opportunity. And if if the Democrats reverse their course on this, if they listen to Ossoff, which, you know, dude, fuck fucking hit it out of the park there, Ossoff. Yeah. Like, like if you listen to this guy, and if you're able to pass this before the midterms, you might actually survive. All right. You probably still won't, but you might. <laughs> All right. This is the easiest thing in the world. And Democrats are fucking it up. And Republicans are taking advantage of it. And for once, at least the Republicans that are, that are, that are nominally fighting for this, they're the good guys. Right, and with that, we will end our show as we usually do on our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is it is my last week before going back to school, which means two things. Number one, it's been a break week. And number two, it's been an anticipatory week for a new semester, which is good for two reasons. Number one, I like my job and I like teaching and I'm excited to get back to it. And number two... I do like breaks. So it's like, <laughs> I, so it's like this week is good and the end of this week will be good. You know? So it's just a good mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. That's awesome. A win win. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. What about you, Michael? I'm really looking forward to the, the long weekend. I've got Monday off. Um, and Bree and I uh, are not doing anything. It's going to be really nice. <laughs> We're going to like, organize our apartment and rearrange a bit we're going to clean we've got a bunch of like little projects that we're going to do i've got to winterize our motorcycles and do some work in my car all kinds of like just normal kind of relaxing stuff it's going to be a a crazy like first quarter of the year with like ski season and everything so it's going to be nice to like rest a little bit over the long weekend before the storm nice and with that thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum and you'll hear from us again (laughs) 